BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Straight ahead on the Insiders, catastrophic flooding means major challenges for the future for much of our state, but it is just the latest in a series of challenges for rural Iowa. This morning, we're going to talk about the needs of those areas and whether state and federal leaders understand them. Plus, your neighbors may like to complain about the elected officials in D.C., but we're going to talk to a man whose neighbors would love that chance to complain or praise their leaders. It's the effort to make Washington, D.C. a state. And play ball. Finally, we'll have an opening weekend prediction about our national pastime. Good morning. Nearly two-thirds of our state's counties have now been declared disaster areas because of flooding. One additional major challenge, obviously, for rural Iowa right now. Let's start with two men who are very familiar with the needs of rural Iowa before all this flooding happened. Doug Gross was a Republican's 2002 nominee for governor, longtime strategist for state and national Republican political campaigns. Thanks good, for coming good, back. Good to be with you. Happening opening day weekend. Yeah. Go Cards. Indeed. <laughs> J.D. Schulten was the Democrats' 2018 nominee in the 4th Congressional District. He has become an advocate for rural Iowa. Also, baseball may come up <laughs> on this show, as we may guess. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Go Twins. Uh, Doug, you grew up in Defiance. You bet. A few years back, and you still have connections, obviously, to rural Iowa. Can I ask you first, just kind of stepping back, you worked in state government. How did they go after and meet the needs of so many communities with all this flooding? What is that going to mean? Well, what it means is you've got people whose lives are devastated. I mean, when you've got a grain bin with your entire year's worth of crop in it and it explodes and you can't use any of it, you're done. And you could be done for your career. So the difficulty at the state level is having enough resources to actually deal with that. So you've got to call on the feds and you've got to have the feds be responsive. So far, it looks that way. They, the president immediately declared a state of emergency and a disaster area for these counties. So I think that's helpful. But we got a lot of underlying problems in rural Iowa beyond just this flood. And you add the flood to it, and become, it can become the end for a lot of farmers. When you go back and, I mean, you've been watching this for years, as so many of these communities keep shrinking, Will the flooding just speed that up where yeah. these towns are just going to disappear, or how do you look at it? Yeah, what happens is effectively the flood becomes a cathartic action that some towns will never reappear. Other towns will rebuild and be stronger than ever. It, it's, it's like a catharsis, and it all depends on whether or not there's local leadership in that town that decide they want to reinvest in their community. Some communities will have it, some won't. J.D., when you did your congressional campaign last year, you went at least three times to all those counties in the 4th District. So you saw them pre-flooding, and now you see what it looks like afterwards. What's the recovery going to mean? Well, it's, uh, there's an opportunity, too, in this time of crisis. We, you see uh, uh, when things are so decimated, like what's going to happen in the rebuilding. And, and so that's what I like to see is uh, the push of bringing in technologies and, and rebuilding some of these areas that have been decimated and, and try to uh, refurbish some of this uh, rural communities that have, have really... Uh, been on the decline for several decades now. In your new life, whatever this is going to be as we kind of move forward here, you're getting the chance to sit down with some of these Democratic presidential candidates who was Elizabeth Warren this past week. 
Can you tell yet, do you think they get it and do they seem receptive? It's one thing for Democrats to say we need to do better in rural Iowa, but do you see that, are they paying attention when you're talking to them? Yeah, I mean, what I've told every candidate is if you're willing to come to Western Iowa and listen to my little spiel on agriculture, I'm more than willing to help out and, and pretty much everybody has been able to do that so far. I think what we saw in the 2016 election compared to previous elections is not enough emphasis on rural and you could see uh, that every one of the 2020 candidates are trying to rebuild or reclaim that Obama uh, uh, coalition. And the part that I don't think it's emphasized enough is the commitment to rural communities and shrinking the margins, not necessarily winning, but at least shrinking the margins so you can win in other areas. Doug, when you go back home, what's your sense of talking to people about this trade war? I felt last summer at the fair talking to a lot of people then there still seemed to be optimism that the president was going to get a better deal, particularly with China and some others here. We're now however many months since then. In fact, the state fair won't, will be here not very long from now, and we're still involved in this. Yeah. Is that faith still with him? Is it strained? What do you make of it? It's interesting. I mean, the problem for rural Iowa is a lot of politicians come in and pat you on the head and think you're going to be okay, and then they walk away, and you're left to live with the result. Mm -hmm. And they, what they do can be devastating. We've had three three major disasters in rural Iowa in the past century, all caused by bad trade and monetary policy, every one of them. And we're on the cusp of having that happen again in Iowa. And the real question, you know, farmers like Trump, they like the way he talks, they like the way he acts, they like the way, what, how he does things. But at the end of the day, right now, farmers can't sell their beans they're gonna, they're gonna plant here in the next month. They can't sell their corn they're gonna plant in the next month. They have no way to, to protect their risk because there's no market for it. If we don't get a trade policy fixed here pretty quick, it's going to be real devastation in rural Iowa. You were talking about when candidates come here, they kind of pat you on the head and say, hey, we're thinking about you, and then yeah. they kind of move on and do nothing here. Clearly, the solutions are complicated and challenging as we've looked at almost a century of shrinking in so yeah. many of our communities. I remember after your 02 run for governor, you had some leftover money. And you all had- Very unusual for politics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you should have spent it. Yeah. <laughs> But you had, you had done some research, and one of the things I remember from back then is you were showing that perhaps some of the future for some of these areas could be building around waterways. Yeah. What, what we did is we took a look, a data-based look at, okay, what counties in Iowa are growing and which ones aren't. You can go up in the district you ran in, and you saw it in spades, J.D., like Sioux County. County's booming. It's as far from Des Moines as you can possibly be. Why is Sioux County booming, yet you can have a county pretty close to Des Moines, say Decatur County, which is the poorest county in the state. Why is that? Why did that occur? We just looked at analysis and tried to match things up. And what we found was in, in Sioux County, they understand you, you need to add value to agricultural products. So they're livestock intensive and they're willing to take risk. And you got a lot of human capital there. In Decatur County, they don't have the rich land you have in Sioux County. So they don't have the ability to do that. What could they do? Well, they could do things like use their natural resources. It's a beautiful to, to, topographical ground. If you put a few lakes down there, for example, you would have tremendous growth. In and they have hunting down there, as you yeah, well know. Yeah, you have hunting and you have fishing, you have great fishing, hunting, you have outdoor activity. But what do people like? They like outdoor recreation. We found that those communities that focused on outdoor recreation, particularly using waterways, could grow when other communities won't. When you were traveling around last year, J.D., where did you see areas where things were working? 
Yeah, like Sioux County is absolutely one of them. And then around Dickinson County, they're growing because uh, of the waterways. I think there's some water there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which helps. And, and, but the, it's starting to become more and more of a retirement community, yeah. too. And so, uh, but, but one thing, we always uh, hear about these tariffs right now, but the thing that's long-lasting uh, are the market consolidation and the squeezing farmers uh, both on the input side and on the output side. And as a result, less than 15 cents of the consumer dollar makes it back to the farmers. And that's a very long-term uh, uh, problem, and we got to find solutions for that. And I, that's what I'm really pushing a lot of the 2020 candidates. And you see some of Elizabeth Warren's, uh, Senator Warren's uh, uh, agriculture policy that she came out with this week addresses that. And, and that's one of the things I'm trying to do, because traditionally, this is not just a, a, a democratic issue. Uh, you oh. look at 100 years ago, we went through this similar thing, and you had uh, President uh, Taft, and before him, you had President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and they did a lot of uh, uh, anti-monopoly uh, uh, trust-busting type of scenarios. Uh, Cory Booker, I've heard talk about this as well. Doug, what do you make of that? How do the Republicans look at like some of one of the Democrats are talking about? Because as you know, as a kid, you know we had a lot of people. I'm sure you remember who are farmers. Now, so few of them still are, and we just have these. Yeah, farms. well, the average size of a farm, uh, an economically viable farm for somebody who just makes a living on a farm, it's got to be three, 4,000 acres. Otherwise, you can't make it go. There's no way to go. And we're not going to turn back that economic clock. We can try all we want to. We're not going to turn back that economic clock. So what, we ha what do we have to do? you got to add value to that product, livestock, ethanol, other things in which you can add value to that product. And you got to do other things. I mean, I think what Governor Reynolds is doing in terms of the Empower Rural Iowa thing is very good. We've talked a lot about, for example, providing broadband, internet access, high-speed internet but access. They keep to talking rural. about that, but and they, they don't never do it. Do it. Why? Right. They never do it. I, I have a farm 45 minutes from Des Moines, and I can't get access to, to internet. I couldn't have a business there. I mean, that's just ridiculous. How can rural Iowa ever survive? So, who solves that? State or feds? Uh, the state's going to have to lead, and I think she is. I think she's doing the right things. Uh, JD, let's do uh, politics here. Fourth yeah. district or U.S. Senate? You're getting pushed <laughs> to run for both of those seats. How do you decide which one's right? Uh, it's it's a tough decision and it's something that's keeping me up at night, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, I I view it as this. Last time I didn't necessarily run against Steve King. I ran for universal health care and for uh, better economy, especially agriculture economy. Maybe and, you should have run against Steve King. <laughs> <laughs> but but to get these issues that I was so passionate about, we. We have the House already, and to get health care, I don't hear things coming uh, from the Republican side on health care. And so uh, we live in the wealthiest country in the world, and every time I stop for gas, there's usually a, a, a donation box, and, and people are begging to pay for their medical, uh, medical costs. And so uh, the Senate, it, it, I'm, I'm intrigued by it, but uh, also we got to get rid of Steve King, and I think that's something that a lot of people, at least on both sides, <laughs> are starting to talk to me about that. So that sounds like you're leaning toward the fourth rather I, than Senate. I honestly, I don't know yet. When do, you, when do you decide when you have to decide? Uh, I'm focused with my nonprofit work in Hero, Iowa right now, and that will take me through tax day, focusing on the earned income tax credit. Uh, and, and then after that, I think. Uh, tax day is almost here. I, about I a month, yeah, and then two weeks away. Yeah. And then I think I'm going to go to a, a couple baseball games oh, before I go. finally Good make my decision. Good way to settle the mind. Uh, speaking <laughs> of baseball, that just may come back, yeah. uh, come up in the end of the show. So if you gents will <laughs> hang on here, we'll do that in a couple of minutes. When we come back, a Des Moines group thinks the national effort is finding some progress to make Washington, D.C estate. Finally, we're going to talk to one of the national leaders on that push next.
the things that Democrats did after they took back the U.S. House was back an effort to make Washington, D.C. a state. It's been talked about for years, but Republicans, it seems, as we know, still control the Senate. It seems like they still have some resistance to changing D.C.'s setup. Paul Strauss is trying to change that, visiting Iowa this week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, you're kind of referred to as the, the U.S. Senator from D.C., right? Well, I am. That's what it says on the ballot. We meet the same requirements. We go through the same process. Residents vote for me. But then when I get to the Congress, I can't return the favor and vote for them on legislation. So it's a non-voting position, sometimes called a shadow senator. Uh, it's unfair. It's un-American. We want to change that. Uh, this has been an effort for a long, long time, right? So why, why do you feel like there's a little more, what changed this year where it seems like House Democrats are on board? Well, it's an issue of simple justice. You know, D.C.'s lack of statehood is part of a pattern of voter suppression that keeps Americans from being represented properly in their government. Washington, D.C. residents serve their country in the military and civilian government. They pay federal taxes. They're subject to federal laws, serve on federal juries, but they don't have the right to be meaningfully represented in Congress with senators or House members who can vote on their behalf on legislation. And that's not how our country was designed to work. Yes, the Constitution set up Washington, D.C. as a seat of national government, uh, but when they placed it under the exclusive control of Congress, uh, there weren't a lot of people living there. Uh, and right now, Americans are tired of government that's big, it's out of control. There's no reason why the national legislature needs to be bothered by overseeing local affairs in Washington, D.C. And we want our self-determination and autonomy. And we can do this in a way that preserves the framers' vision of the Constitution by shrinking the federal district to the part of the district that's really just federal. Uh, as you know, Republicans know the partisan makeup of the district and aren't too thrilled that it's so heavily Democratic. Doesn't that work against you? Well, when Republicans are thinking only from a partisan standpoint and not a principled one, I guess they're going to be inclined to look at their party's interest. They could see it as a redistricting or a gerrymandering opportunity, or it could be part of a disturbing ideological trend towards restricting those who can vote. Uh, we in D.C. think that it should be easy for people to vote and that all Americans should be able to vote. This is a natural extension of that. That's why H.R. 1 got so much support. That's why principled people in the Senate are supporting the effort. Uh, I could tell you that if there was a part of the United States that uh, where Americans are denied their rights to vote and the people were of a different party, I think we'd be supporting that effort. Puerto Rico is represented with a Republican governor. They have a Republican member representing them as the non-voting resident commissioner. Uh, I don't oppose statehood for the people of Puerto Rico. Did, it's a different issue, but... Did Puerto Rico suffer with that uh, the weather catastrophe they dealt with? Do you think they paid the price by not being recognized as a state? Absolutely. The storm didn't discriminate on political boundaries, but the restoration dollars and the, those efforts uh, certainly favored uh, important states like Florida. Uh, I think you talked to them down there. They're very much feeling disenfranchised. Now, how they remedy that situation uh, is, is up to the people of the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. I don't want to tell them what to do, but I, I think it's time that we recognize that D.C. certainly the most egregious because we pay taxes and taxation without representation was kind of a founding principle of our revolution. I've seen that on a license plate or two. Well, it's on ours. <laughs> it's, it's on ours. And of course, it's a historic 
uh, slogan that, that talks about a, a principle of equality that dates back to our revolution. Uh, the patriots who formed this country weren't wrong when they called it tyranny, and it's uh, a, a great injustice today that we want to rectify. But the fact that there are parts of the United States where the American flag flies, but there's no star on it for the people who live there, the fact that all of those territories send men and women in uniform into harm's way in the defense of our country and aren't denied e are denied equality and don't have rights that Americans do. That's wrong, and that's the kind of thing that in the 21st century uh, it's time to really end once and for all. All right, Washington Senator Paul Strauss, appreciate the time, safe travels. Thank Thanks you. for being here. When we come back, where politics and government rank in a new poll of what people in the Des Moines metro most care about. We'll look at those numbers next. Admittedly, this will sound a bit self-serving, this next segment, but there's a new Pew Research Center survey, and it shows that local television news is the dominant choice for Metro consumers when it comes to their daily source for local news, and it's really not even close. 51% in this survey rely on local TV every day. It's about twice as much as the people who rely on websites or apps, and it's more than four times as much as print. So looking down more into this survey, we also found this. It shows consumers' priorities. At the top, weather. So when you want to know why TV stations break in with severe weather coverage, it's because safety, obviously, and it's a dominant interest for people. After that, traffic and transportation, then crime, then the prices of things that we have to buy. And then you see where politics and government. So. It, politics and government, kind of a top five thing, but you can see where it relates when it comes to the top issues that are on people's minds. When we come back, a moment of tradition at the Iowa State House where colleagues recognized the service of those who came before them, but this time it also included a very powerful moment for a, a well-known man in that building who has been overcoming a lot. Every two years, the Iowa legislature gathers for a joint ceremony. House and Senate lawmakers get together to recognize history. They honor those they call the pioneer lawmakers, those lawmakers who started in the body 20 years previously. But they also have an honorary class. And this session, it was pretty powerful. Well, at this time, would you please stand and be recognized? There was a very emotional moment for John Peterson. He's been a lobbyist up there for a long time. He had a stroke two years ago, and he's been rehabbing a lot. The left side of his body, as he stood there, it was just a very intense, powerful moment. Kind of, as everybody remembered all the things he's gone through these last two years, going through some pretty extensive physical therapy, including treatments out in China with acupuncture to regain his ability to stand. Here are the members of this session's Pioneer Lawmakers and the other honorary members. They represent collectively dozens of years of service as legislators, as lobbyists, and as dedicated servants. This recognition has been going on for a long time. The class of 1886, that was the first class that they recognized with the Pioneer Lawmaker distinction. Opening weekend, those traffic cameras and predictions all next in the Insider's Quick Fix.
Time for the Insider's Quick Six. Gentlemen, question one. Legislature looking at those traffic cameras. Will they end up banning them this session? Will they regulate them? Will they leave them like they are? Uh, like they are. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Uh, question two. They're looking at making solar customers pay it be about $300 a year for access to the grid here. Mid-American's a big proponent of this, trying to push this through. Will that actually happen this session? or? Unfortunately, yes. I don't, I don't think so, uh, or I hope not. Uh, question three, this Mueller report. So we got the summary of this thing. Will anything, you know, we're hearing there may be a grand jury still looking at stuff. Will anything really damning come out of the president, or is everything out that's really going to come out? Oh, no. I mean, the rest of, when the rest of the report comes out, you're going to have a whole other flurry of activity. It'll be nasty. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, question four, on the Democratic side, who's the favorite? To get the nomination. He starts that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, I think it's such an even playing field, it's, it's really hard to tell. Nice answer. <laughs> way, to, way to artfully dodge Uncle, that. Uncle Joe. He's going to be the favorite? Yeah, and he's going to win. All right. The question, of course, I've been waiting all show to ask you. Opening day, opening weekend here at baseball. Uh, who's your World Series pick? Cardinals, of course. Really? Yeah, I think they've rebuilt uh, Goldsmith. Five-year contract, okay. middle of the order is better, defense is better. We can do it. All right. Uh, J.D., you're a Twins fan. I am. I'm going to go with the Yankees because I can't stand them. And so if, if it doesn't <laughs> come Yankees. true, I'm okay. <laughs> Reverse psychology here. You All think right. they'll beat the Red Sox? In the uh, I mean, Red Sox got some pretty darn good Oh, pitching. man. So. Don't know about the bullpen. Yeah. Right. And that's what's been happening. Let's go get Kimbrell or something. Yeah. All right. Your prediction. My prediction is Donald Trump will not carry the state of Iowa if he doesn't fix the trade issue by fall. Uh, as much as I want to talk baseball, and Tony Watson is a really good friend of mine, mm. reliever for the Giants, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, Megan Gustafson, uh, Iowa women, they're going to play two games this weekend, and she's going to score at least 70 points. She is combined. unbelievable. Yeah, she's unbelievable. fantastic. And great personality, yeah. so marketable. That whole team is fantastic. Yeah, amazing. All right, thank you both. Appreciate it. Thank you. Man, I felt really short this show, by the way, now that we do this show. Because he is. <laughs> I am next to you, too. Thanks for being with us. Let's stay connected throughout the week. We'll see you next Sunday for the